It's midnight in America, and this is the Hour of Decision. My name is Lou Moore, and my show, Hour of Decision, is on News for America at newsforamerica.org and podcast platforms too numerous to mention. Tonight, we're going to ask a simple question. What is money? It's for America. And tonight, we're going to talk about, because you're so great about your money, what it is, where it came from, and what And to discuss that with me tonight is Joe Becker, a one-time staffer for Congressman Ron Paul, his legislative director for several years. Joe's an attorney. He also has a master's degree in economics and studied under the great Murray Rothbard at the University of Nevada at Las Vegas. He's practiced public interest law and has a number of publications in connection with that practice. But tonight, we're going to talk about money. So, Joe, thanks for being with us. Sure. Happy to be here. So, what is money, Joe? (laughs) Well, economists would define it as a commonly used medium of exchange, but that definition's been distorted. Uh, I mean, money really emerges in the marketplace as a commodity only. I mean, if you start with if you start with the most basic economy, what we call the Robinson Crusoe model, you know, Robinson on an island has really no use for money because he's just producing his own sustenance, one would hope. Even when Friday shows up and Crusoe fishes and Robinson I'm sorry, and Friday trades berries. Really no use for money there either because all there really is to trade is fish for berries or berries for fish. Assuming the person catching the fish wants berries and the person who has berries wants some fish, but the third person shows up. And there's those, in other words, there's barter, and then from barter, there's something that they use that's more of a symbol than it is an actual item. Is that what you're saying? No, no I wouldn't. it's not fish. You you jumped the gun a little bit there, Lou. I frequently do that, Joe. But you, uh, that's why that's why I have you here to correct. Okay, well, you're you're very close though. So you've got Robinson catching fish because that's what he's good at. You've got Friday picking berries because that's what Friday's good at. There's there's really no need for money because the only thing to trade fish for is berries, and the only thing to trade berries for is fish. But if a third person comes onto this island and is particularly adept at scaling trees and harvesting coconuts, uh, now you wind up with three goods. And it might be that Robinson wants coconuts, but the person who is harvesting the coconuts is allergic to fish and has no interest in Robinson's fish. What might then happen is Robinson might trade his fish for berries, the person who has the berries, and then use those berries to trade for the coconut that he actually wants. So this eliminates what we call the double coincidental wants problem where, you, you know, Robinson has to find, if he wants coconuts, has to find a coconut having fish wanter. And that's not always easily done. But what happens in this situation where berries become the intermediate trading good as some good will emerge in the marketplace as one more marketable than others, which can be used to increase the number of trade opportunities. And that's that's really the only way that money emerges absent government force. And 
that money emerges in the marketplace. So it gets rid of that double coincidence of wants problem. And people trade out of, you know, the thing that's less marketable for something that's more marketable just because it gives them more opportunities for trade. And the more you can trade and specialize in the thing and producing the thing you're best at producing, the richer the economy becomes. So that's, that's, I would describe money as some good that emerges in the marketplace as the most marketable good and, you know, that can be used for intermediate, you know, means of exchange. Sure, sure. So you mentioned government, and when most people think about money, they immediately think about government. So, but that relationship is not automatic, is it? I mean, you've just described a hypothetical situation where there was no government, but a good kind of becomes money because it can be, it's more easily exchangeable as an, as a commodity than other commodities. Right. You know, we could take that even one step further. You know, good economists can predict in any given economy what is likely to emerge as money because it will have certain traits. I mean, it outcompetes other goods that have fewer of those traits or, you know, the traits just aren't, aren't, aren't rich. I mean, you, you know that whatever emerges as money is going to have to be durable because sometimes people want to hold money. Sometimes people want to accrue wealth and spend it in the future. So some, something that spoils quickly or eggs, for example, not terribly durable. You put them in your pocket. You put them in the sun, you know, they become worthless fairly quickly. So one of the traits that we would expect to emerge is money is, is it's going to have to be durable. Second, second thing is it's going to have to be recognizable by most people. One doesn't want to spend a lot of time figuring out what something is and deciding whether to, you know, use it as a means of exchange. So it has to be recognizable. It has to be divisible, meaning... You know, you cut a tractor in half and each half is worthless. You know, you cut a loaf of bread in half and each half is worth roughly half of what the full loaf is worth. So it's going to have to be divisible. And typically it's going to have to have a high value per unit weight. In other words, relatively scarce because one doesn't want to have to carry around bucket loads of something that is really not rare in exchange for sure. some some good. So it has to be portable, I guess is what what would say. And what goes into portability is scarcity and high value per per unit weight. And you know what we've learned over time is different things emerge in different economies, but the more vast the economy, the more likely it is that something like silver or gold will emerge as money because it's the thing that best meets those traits. It's durable, it's recognizable, it's divisible without losing, you know, all value. And it's, you know, relatively easy to store as things go. But it could be cigarettes in prisons. It could be cigarettes in prisoners of war camps. Because whatever meets those tests that I just laid out, whatever best meets those tests in any given economy will be the thing that that emerges as what what we're calling money. And and as maybe you've got an economy that has no gold or silver in it, something will emerge in that economy as a medium of exchange. But as soon as that economy interacts with an economy that does have something better, then between those two economies, something will emerge 
as the common medium of exchange between between those economies. So, I mean, that's that's the only way that money really emerges absent some sort of initiation of force or some law to uh, to to alter that 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 natural state. So. If I'm understanding you correctly, Ben, you're saying money is a kind of a naturally occurring phenomena created by need. It has these various characteristics that you just described. And so that can and will happen regardless, like cigarettes in prison. But uh, it tends to end up having a relationship to government because a certain system is forced on the populace or a part of the populace. Is that correct? Right. And, you know, the best example uh, in in the U.S. was, you know, when FDR required all gold and silver to be turned into government in exchange for, for paper money under a threat of $10,000 fine and 10 years in prison. Yeah, right. And he went right to the safety deposit boxes in 1933. So that's that. Absent some action like that, you're not going to go in. I mean, if you compare paper to all the other things I mentioned, from coconuts to berries to fish to gold to silver to cigarettes, not that cigarettes don't involve some paper, but I mean, they do. Paper does not meet those traits. It's not scarce. It can be mass produced, which of course has become a problem, as we know. And uh, so one should always ask, well, how is it that, you know, paper becomes money and you know we just sort of answered that by taking a quick look at well depression era history sure so yeah so so bringing this up to somewhat somewhat current with this the united states becomes a country the constitution says that yeah, it's a proper role of government to coin gold and silver and uh, and they start doing so but then the convenience of paper is sold to the public as being an adequate substitute for gold and silver if it's backed by gold and silver. Do I have that kind of right? Is yeah, I I think so. That can happen even absent government involvement, right? Because you know people take their gold and silver to you know a storage vault, for example, just like if you you know needed to store your you're moving somewhere and you need to store your household goods, you might take them to a warehouse and say, hey, keep these safe for six months or, or I curse self-storage now. But, but, you know, in the day, you know, my dad was in the moving and storage business, moving and storage, and sometimes people would move and they didn't know where they were, you know, when their house was going to be ready or when they were going to find one to move their stuff so stuff would get stored and they would get a warehouse receipt. And the same thing could happen with, with precious metals or whatever's money. You could take it for self, you know, for safe storage and in exchange get a, a warehouse receipt. And then when you're ready to pick it up, you could take your warehouse receipt back to my dad's warehouse and pick up your couch or whatever. The same thing could happen with money and then, or with, you know, with real money. And then what happens is, you know, Maybe I decide I don't really like the couch as much as the one I just found, so I sell the couch by giving, taking money from someone and giving them my warehouse receipt, which gives them the right to the, go pick up the couch, and now it's their couch. Uh, the same thing could happen with money. So, I mean, paper can, paper can emerge without government 
but it can't really emerge without being backed by some commodity without force because no one's going to just, you know, accept paper in lieu of something that has intrinsic value. Um, so, so there was a time when warehouse receipts would circulate because rather than, you know, me run to the bank, get my gold out of storage, give it to someone, and that person runs to maybe the same bank or maybe different bank and puts the gold or silver in storage there, the warehouse receipts can circulate as, you know, a proxy for money. But, you know, you brought up the point that it backed by something. I mean, those warehouse receipts, you know, when backed by something. Of course, there's always a temptation to issue more warehouse receipts than you have couches in your warehouse or, you know, I give you a warehouse receipt for your couch and then I open up on the side a furniture re a rena rent a center yeah. and I put your couch out into somebody else's house and charge the money for it. That's a little that's a little trickier with things that aren't fungible, you know, that are non heterogeneous goods. But you know, theoretically that could happen and it's easier for that to happen. Well, the threat of course is that some some competitor of my dad's warehouse will say, "Hey, you should go get your couch because I think you, I, I think my neighbor's sitting on it." And then there could be a run on the warehouse, just like there could be a run on the bank, and that's how you know honest warehousing is is maintained. Is all it takes is one competitor to figure out that someone's issuing more warehouse receipts and they actually have goods in storage, and then. You know the market solves that problem by that person going out of business. Sure. So that that that, that system operates on confidence and the confidence of the consumer that they're uh, that they can redeem that receipt when the time comes. Right. So so government and so the America. I mean to get it. You know, moving toward the present day. So government in this country did something like that and said our our money is backed by gold, although at various times even early on. Uh, they issued money that wasn't backed by anything, as did states, if I remember right. The Panic of 1819, I think, was an example of where states were issuing paper and telling people it was money. And then at some point, the jig was up because people lost confidence. Uh, and so you talk about that a little bit, about the, uh, about the government's increasing role in, in money in the United States. Yeah, you can go all the way back to uh, you know even when even when you know gold is money and government hasn't been sophisticated enough yet to you know like hold guns to people's heads and force them to turn in real money for worthless pieces of paper. Um, there's another thing that happened along the way, which which we call coin clipping. So uh -huh. sort of sort of the thing that happens before the complete you know removal of uh, commodity-backed paper is people turn in their gold and exchange. You know, the king says, well, it should be my picture. It should be my silhouette that's on the money and not, not the former king. So we need you to turn in your money and we're going to reissue it with, you know, or it's, you know, it's starting to get worn or rusty or whatever it might be. And, you know, come up with some reason like that. And then what happens is people turn their gold in, their coins, and the coins are reissued by the government with lower 
precious metal content. And so, you know, I take in a hundred coins that are one ounce each. I issue a hundred coins again that are only, you know, point, you know, point nine ounces of gold. And then when I keep the difference and then I can make more coins out of those because the gold, in essence, the, the coins that I clipped off, even the fact that we have little ridges on the sides of our money is a function of people shaving when there was precious metal in the, in the, in the coins. Instead of what, what they're made of now, people would file off little bits of it. Then over time, you could remove silver or gold from coins if, you know, by scraping off the, you know, by filing off the sides a little bit, you can accrue wealth. But all that's inflationary because it gets reissued as more money but less gold in it. So that's sort of an intermediate step that has also happened in history where X amount of gold is taken in, X amount is, and then X amount of coins are reissued, which look like the same amount of money, but they're not because it doesn't have, you know, the same metal content in it. But, you know, unless you're sophisticated assayer, you might not notice that. So you're reminding me now, when I was 10 years old, how Lyndon Johnson announced the issuing of what they called sandwich coins, where where the dime that was pure silver before now has kind of a silver texture to it, but has copper on the inside of it. And I remember my mother saying, uh, we're saving every uh, dime we can save of the old dimes, and we're not going to spend them on anything and because they're, they're going to be worth more and more money as silver, all these new coins that are being issued as you weren't so sure about. Yeah, ironically, that's now called junk silver, uh, like pre-65 dimes, quarters, 50-cent pieces, mm-hmm. because those were 90% silver. And then from 65 to, I want to say, like 67, they were something like 60%, maybe maybe 40 So I, I forget the exact percentage, but I do know that, you know, before 65, the, the dimes that the quarters of the 50 cent pieces were 90% silver. And now, just to sort of give you a sense of how that's, how that's meaningful, that, you know, those, uh, let's see, uh, like $1,000, $1,000 worth of coins is something like 751 ounces of silver. And 751 ounces of silver you know, if you did the multiplication, I got my calculator here, so I do that. So a thousand, a thousand dollars in coins, it's just say $23 an ounce. That's now $17,250 worth of silver. So, I mean, that's a rough estimation based on today's prices. But so if you have a thousand dollars of those dimes, if your mom's got a thousand dollars of those dimes, that thousand dollars is now worth seven, roughly $17,250. In fact, there's there's a restaurant in Wisconsin that has two price uh, that has a menu with two prices on it, and one of them is if you pay in a pre sixty five coins, and one of them is if you pay in you know current the currency I'll call it floating around now, and like a hamburger is ten cents if you buy it with a, a mercury dime, but if you use a regular dime, you need like twenty five dimes. Buy it, so they you can trade in either you can trade in either money or currency, I'll call it, and the prices are just a small fraction 
at that little burger stand if you use pre-65 coins. Sure, sure. So I know there were some elements of paper money and before the Federal Reserve, but uh, in 1913, when the Federal Reserve system came in and we had a central national bank determining the money supply and issuing currency, uh, that's when we were really done in by this. Is that, that your assessment of it? In other words, and we're getting in now to talking about fiat money that is based on nothing or close to nothing or just the whim of the day. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, you know, the reason I like to talk about my dad's moving and storage business is because one of the things that would be the case is if you had a warehouse receipt, I mean, it's bailment law. This is where I sort of tapped into my legal background a little bit. Bailment law. It's not legal to, you know, charge someone to store their stuff and at the same time not store it, sell it, mm-hmm. lend it out at money, you know, some lease charge, whatever. But one of the, so the market force to keep people from, in essence, lending out things that they don't have a right to lend. Um, like if you put money in your checking account, you'd like to think it's there. Of course, now it's not because of, you know, I think you mentioned fractional reserve banking. In this case where the you know banks don't have everything on deposit that the depositors think they have on deposit. I mean, before the Fed, they were just kind of counting on not everybody to come and ask for their money at the same time. But there were bank runs, of course, and this is you know part of history that you're familiar with. That's your background. Uh, but you know, what one thing the Federal Reserve Act did is that legalized for bankers the ability to loan money that they don't have. This fractional reserve banking system where you could loan up to 10 times the amount of money you had on deposit. And that if, if there was a bank run, which we've actually seen most recently, then the Federal Reserve became the lender of the last resort and they would sort of bail out the bank. Some depositors didn't lose money. It keeps the fraudulent system going. But you can't go to your bank and sue them for under bailment law for lending out money that you think is on deposit because the Federal Reserve Act allows them to do it. Sure, sure. And so to talk a little bit, Joe, I, I remember talking to Dr. Paul one time, and, and he told me, I just hadn't really thought of it this way, and I definitely couldn't contradict it, but he was saying there has never been in the history of the world a system of fiat money, or in other words, money based on just what the government said it's based on and, and, and with no other backing to it, that, that there's never been a system that did not fail because of the greed of the people running that system. Well, I mean, you would expect it to fail anyway just because eventually people figure out. I, I don't know if you've noticed, but it's like, it, it's not just Fox, Fox News, but there are commercials on almost every channel encouraging people to buy gold. Costco is selling gold and silver now. Uh, I mean, they're limiting, they're even limiting the amount you can purchase, which is weird. It's like people are flocking out of paper, their concern. And of course, during periods of inflation, that's going to happen anyway. And we haven't talked yet about inflation, but well, I'm sure we will. And, and uh, at some point, you know, I'm sure Dr. Paul's right. I mean, I, I've known a lot of macroeconomists and when work with them, and I, I don't know that I don't know that anyone understood macroeconomics better than Dr. Paul. I mean, I thought when I came out of grad school, I was you know going to go to work for Ron and 
was going to be like instrumental in helping him. It wound up being that, you know, it was a continuation of my education from him. Sure. Because he, he understood, he understood monetary policy, I think, better than anyone I've ever known. So if he said that's true, I'm, sh I'm sure it is, but it also stands a reason that would be the case because eventually people, eventually fraud feasers, you know, get figured out. And that's exactly what, that's exactly what this is. I mean, it's, it's not a legal fraud because of the Federal Reserve Act and other laws, but I mean, it's, it's fraud in a moral sense and fraud in the practical sense. Sure. You mentioned inflation. I mean, that kind of inflation is par for the course. In other words, in our history, since the Federal Reserve in particular, the question is always how much inflation is there? And gee, it's wonderful. There's only 3% inflation in the last year. So talk, talk a little bit about inflation. I mean, what is it? Why is it important? And why do a lot of people say it's just straight up theft? Well, it's, it's theft for some and enrichment for others, right? So, you know, when I was teaching, when I was teaching macro in some of the different places I've worked, you know, so I, I work way, my way through law school by teaching at a community college and I've taught at other times as well. I like the Angel Gabriel model because people sort of understand it. And it's sort of, but, you know, we do a lot of thought experiments in the Austrian school instead of running multiple regression models where you can't ever really figure out all the variables that all the uh, independent variables that determine the dependent variable. But the Angel Gabriel model is pretty simple to understand. And I think it helps people understand inflation pretty well. It goes as follows. Tonight, when we all go to bed, or maybe let's make it New Year's Eve since it's timely. New Year's Eve, we all go to bed and the angel Gabriel decides to do something really great for us. So what he does is he doubles the amount of money in our wallets while we're sleeping and he doubles the amount of money in our checking account. The savings accounts remain unchanged. The investment accounts remain unchanged, but the wallets and checkbooks are double. So, you know, the angel thinks that the angel's doing something really great for us and we all wake up in the morning and lo and behold, happy new year. Uh, we all have twice as much money in our wallets and twice as much money in our checking accounts. And I would ask the students, so are we better off, worse off, or the same? And I would get a variety of answers. I think you're astute enough that I don't want to ask you because you'll steal my thunder. But, you know, what happens is people get up in the morning and they start spending the money, maybe, Maybe they save it, but there's definitely more money chasing the same amount of goods and services in existence. And you don't measure wealth and economy by the amount of pieces of paper that exist in someone's wallet and the blips in their checking account. You measure wealth by, you know, adding up all the goods and services in existence at any one time as the numerator and the number of people in that given economy would be the denominator. You know, we could talk a lot about the fairness of distribution, but one way you know for sure what the wealth of the economy is, it's like per capita wealth, right? You just divide all the goods and services in existence by the number of people and you come up with per capita wealth. Well, you know, I would explain to the students, per capita wealth has not changed. We didn't do anything to affect the numerator or denominator. We just, you just suddenly have a lot more pieces of paper change chasing the same amount of goods and services. So what you would expect to happen is that as people start spending the money, storekeepers realize 
gee whiz, if I don't raise my price, I'm going to sell out of my inventory before, I'm going to sell all my bread before noon. I can get away with raising the price. I'll get a lot more money. Of course, when the bread baker, the baker goes to buy more flour and sugar and whatever else goes into bread, yeast, I suppose, he's going to figure out that the prices of those things have been bid up too. So, you know, what you might expect generally, it's not axiomatic, but sort of an empirical question depending on how much money people hold on to. You'd expect a rough doubling of prices. But as Bastiat taught us, French economist, you have to pay attention to what's seen as well as what's not seen. And so it might matter who wakes up first, because if I run to the store and start buying stuff before everyone else, the shopkeeper at that point isn't going to realize that there's twice as much money chasing the same amount of goods, and I'll wind up buying at yesterday's prices and still have a lot of money left over. The late uh, the people who stay in bed late, by the time they get to the store, the prices are arguing to be bid up. So it does matter, you know, if we translate this to the real economy. Um, what, what you find out is that it does the early receivers of the money benefit at the expense of the late receivers of the money. So it depends on, and of course, it's not an Angel Gabriel situation. It's a situation where money gets injected into an economy at a certain point. And typically those closest to banking and government are the early receivers of the money. And those farthest from connection with governments and banks are the late receivers of the money. And by the time they get it, prices have already been bid up. I made a point of not talking about, uh, or mentioning, I should say, that savings accounts are not doubled, only checking in wallets doubled. So what happens to the retiree? What happens to the person who thought they saved enough money to get themselves through X number of years of not earning, of retirement living? Uh, not that that would affect you or me anytime soon, Lou, but uh, suddenly they're faced with the same amount of pieces of paper, and their pieces of paper buy only half as much. So they're basically robbed as a result of the ability of government to increase the number of pieces of paper circulating in an economy. Uh, they're the ultimate late receivers. They're technically the non-receivers of the new money, right, if that's the way it's injected. I mean, uh, you know, sometimes government will, you know, increase the Social Security payments or whatever, but as far as the pure savings that you were counting on living on, uh, you're, you're suddenly your savings by half as much as what they used to buy. And then, of course, you know, the other hidden thing, is that you've probably been, if even if you're not a peer saver, your income's going to go up in nominal terms, but not real terms. In other words, the number of dollars you get may buy the same amount of stuff as the price has doubled in our, in our example, but your real income didn't go up because, but your nominal income went up and it probably pushed you into a higher tax bracket because the tax brackets don't necessarily instantaneously change just because the amount of currency chasing your salary or your, you know, your production, well, you, you wind up paying a higher percentage of your, your, your income in tax. So there's, there's that destructive impact as well. Sure. Well, 
you, you know, you mentioned the advantage the government has in this situation. Well, I, am I correct in, in understanding that the biggest driver of this inflating the currency, adding more and more money into a system with the same number of goods is government debt? The idea that we're going to have the government start a bunch of new programs or build a bridge or whatever, and and uh, and the tax money may not cover all of that, but we're going to print enough money for it to happen anyway. Well, yeah, I mean you're mostly right. One one can incentivize the other certainly. Um, if the government wants to promise a lot of things to a lot of people, uh, and they wind up with the inability to. I mean, I guess here's the way to say it. Government can pay for things one of three ways that come to mind. One is they can tax people and take money. I mean, let's assume that let's assume that we're actually on a commodity money standard. And the only way I mean, government's not mining gold, right? Private companies do that. But their only way to and the only thing that the only thing they can use to pay for what they're purchasing would be gold. So what can they do? I mean, they can't print gold, but what they can do is they can tax you or they can borrow gold and use that gold to pay, you know, pay their pay their obligations. If they have paper money, it gives them one more option. Instead of either ta taxing people, you know, people resist taxes. You know, it's often said that if people had to write a check every month instead of instead of having it withdrawn from their their paycheck, taxes would be a lot lower because people would would more directly see uh, if they had to write a check like they do for their mortgage or their car payment. I mean, if they had to write a check to government for every month for the income tax instead of having it withheld by their employer, it, it would the point would be driven home. But I guess my point is that people resist taxes. I mean, especially they don't feel like they're getting anything for it. More and more, I think that's the case. So, so in a commodity money standard, they're really their only choice would be to tax people or to borrow money. And if they borrow money, you know, no one's, because of time preference, no one's lending money unless they're getting something more in return. So, so they're going to, they're going to pay interest, which of course increases the amount of tax they'd have to pay in the future. But under the under the fiat money standard, as you call it, paper money backed by no real wealth, they can just pay their bills a third way, and that is by increasing the amount of money in circulation, and paying their paying their obligations in that. So, you know, so when they promise more than they can deliver, they're now forced with one of those three choices: taxing. And of course, the same people who vote for more government services typically vote in large number against ra raising taxes. Funny how that works, isn't it? Yeah, right. There's a disconnect somehow. But in any event, fiat currency allows government to spend more than they otherwise would and promise more than they otherwise could. But what they wind up doing if they don't borrow it or tax people is they wind up uh, inflating the currency, which has the effect of in essence, taxing people in a different way, especially those on fixed income or those living off, you know, savings, and that also increases the the taxes just as a result of the progressive income tax schedule because 
increasing the money supply means, again, as we talked about in the Angel Gabriel model, it, it winds up increasing the, the percentage of your income that winds up getting paid in the form of taxes. So it's a vicious cycle, which, you know, unfortunately, we've been captive of way too long. Yeah, well, and, and with government spending, whether they raise your taxes to do the spending or they print the money to do the spending and then cause you to have inflation and have all the prices for everything that you want to buy go up. Uh, yeah, yeah. Either way, that's not good. But isn't the third problem is the ramifications of that spending? In other words, uh, what is the difference, Joe, between government spending in an economy and private spending in an economy? I mean, some people would argue, well, we're employing all these people. we got to have this program because look at all the people that are getting jobs and and then maybe they're in business, you know, the contractors, they'll hire more people, have these government contracts. But 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 what is the problem with that thinking, that government spending is somehow better than private spending in the economy? Well, there's there's a couple reasons that that's the case. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier that economists, good ones at least, like to look at, you know, what is seen as well as what is not seen. So... In this case, you know, it's easy to see because government makes a point of telling you cutting ribbons on the new bridge, cutting ribbons for the new, I don't know, post office, whatever it might be that they're building, whatever they're using this monies for. They announce at the top of their lungs the great things that they're doing to help, I guess, make you feel a little bit better about, you know, being robbed through taxation. But what you don't see is where that, how that money would have been spent before. I mean, there's a great, uh, going back to Boston, yeah, there's a great example. It's called the broken window fallacy where some little kid throws a brick through a, a bakery window and, and the baker suddenly to keep the flies off the donuts, which is, in my mind, a very high priority, uh, has to figure out some way to replace the glass. So he hires the glazier to, you know, to replace the glass so his donuts aren't ruined by fly infestation. So typically what you hear is, well, hey, at least the at least the glass maker, at least the window guy, he has some work where you otherwise wouldn't have had some work. But that's a very that's a very narrow view of the situation. That's kind of the argument that you're you're making or not really making, but the argument you're you're bringing up is that, well, yeah, the government's taxing you, but they're spending the money and they're employing people. But there, there's two parts of this, well, maybe three parts of it that, that need to be talked a little bit more about. And the first thing is, is what would the baker have done with his money if he didn't have to buy a, you know, a new sheet of glass and have the window repairman come and install it? Turns out maybe his daughter was getting married and he wanted to have a nice suit for his daughter's wedding. And he'd already spoken to the tailor and measurements have been taken. Well, the money that he would have spent on the suit is now spent on the glass. So again, zero sum game or not. So the glazier has work instead of the, instead of the tailor. But you're st once again forgetting one other thing, or at least two other things. And the first thing is, what happens at the end of this scenario? Instead of there being glass and a suit in existence... Now there's only glass, right? Whereas there would have been both glass and a suit and one person employed, hit, absent the destruction of 
you know, the window. But the other thing is, is government spends money in a way that's very different than the way individuals spend money. Uh, we talk about something called subjective utility in the Austrian school, and that is the notion that, you know, people value things differently and behave differently according to those subjective valuations. Government is very far removed from, well, yeah, I think it's fair to say they're very far removed from what people's subjective, you know, utility valuations are. You know, the baker knew that what he really wanted was a suit. The government doesn't know, it really can't know. Only the market can sort this stuff out. And it's not perfect, but it sorts it out much better than a government is far removed. You know, people spend their money according to the things they value most, and it generates the most amount of, you know, personal satisfaction. If you're forced to turn money over to someone else and they spend it for you, there's no reason to think that the, that the utility that's generated by government spending is in any way close to the amount of satisfaction or utility that's generated when individuals are making individual decisions about what do I value most, X or Y, uh, in a combination of all of these, you know, subjective valuations and exchanges. I mean, one, one need only, you know, think about voluntary exchange and how it's mutually beneficial because, you know, if, you know, if I offer to trade you my iPhone for your iPad, you must value the, you know, the iPad less than the iPhone. Uh, you know, maybe that's a bad example because they're similar things, but, you know, whatever it is for a, an exchange to take place, there have to be reverse utility preferences and both parties are necessarily better off through that exchange. If you're forced, you know, if you hold a gun in my head and say, I want your car, I mean, you're obviously a net winner. You wouldn't have initiated the force to get the car, but what did I get in exchange? I got nothing, or at least something, you know, something, perhaps a heart attack. I don't know, something less than, less valuable to me than keeping my own car. If, if I wanted you to have a car, I could have, you know, freely given it to you. So when, when government does these forceful, you know, takings of money, Whatever they, whatever they think they're giving you in exchange for it is probably not what you would have done with that money. And so when you add that up with every consumer, you know, nationwide, there's no reason to think that, that you know, the way government is spending money is generating more societal utility or benefit than people spend spending their own money as they best see fit. And I, I suppose this is a reason that local government is better than federal government spending because they tend to be more in touch with what, you know, what the local people want as opposed to federal. But, you know, the same is true, I think, for, you know, every level of government spending as opposed to people spending their own money as they, they best see fit. Yeah, well, the, the phrase that comes to mind for me on this topic is unintended consequences. I went back to Washington, D.C., and there's constant talk about it. Well, we'd pass this bill, but boy, there were some unintended consequences over here and over there. That, you know, we thought everything was going to be great, but we didn't think about this. I mean, the world is complicated. And to come up with these sweeping generalizations that lead to sweeping government programs that are often funded through deficit spending, it's just a lot of waste and a lot of misallocation of wealth. Right. The one size, the one size fits all approach. It's, um, there's, yeah, like I said, the market isn't perfect, but 
as my dad used to, what, what was my dad's expression it's not the best but there's nothing better sure sure right well if, if, there's a tendency toward a lot quicker self-correction i think when people have their own money in the in the game that's true so we're talking about money because your dough does matter. My guest is Joe Becker, and uh, this is a conversation that we're going to continue in future episodes. So we hope you will stay tuned. My name is Lou Moore. The name of this show is Hour of Decision on News for America. We hope you enjoyed this program, and you will continue to check out what we're doing. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lou.